Children, one last children's meeting. Let's come up here. James came to us at lunchtime today, and he brought us, my wife and I, uh, cup, two cupcakes. I don't know if he didn't think we ate enough or what, but I said for that we get children's meeting tonight again. But now he's not here, it's all right. Okay, so let's think about heaven tonight. What's heaven like? What's one word you could say about heaven? It's bright. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's bright. What else do we know about heaven? Jesus is there. God is there. Do you want to go to heaven? How are we going to go to heaven? Die and go to heaven. Die and go to heaven? Yep, our soul will go to heaven. Our soul will go to heaven? Okay. Are we going to go there in an airplane? No. No. God's going to take us. He's going to take our soul to heaven somehow. He's going to take us there. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about an airplane right ahead. Here's the ticket. This ticket says from Traverse City, Michigan to Detroit, Michigan. And I was the only person on the plane. Think that'd be fun? I should say this. I was the only paying passenger on the plane. Okay. <laughs> So I went to this airport, and it was in a town of many, many people, size of Athens or bigger, 40,000 people. I don't know what Athens is, but half that. Okay, so 40,000 people in Traverse City, and I went there, and there was nobody in the parking lot, nobody. I walked into the airport, and there was nobody in the hallway, but there was a kiosk there, which is a thing that you put your... Passport in to get this ticket out. I got that out, and I walked down the hall a little bit further, and there was a man behind the counter. And he spoke to me. He said, uh, you're one of three people that are flying out of this airport this morning. So that's kind of strange. Only three people in a big airplane? Hmm. So I went down to Homeland Security where they check you and make sure you don't have any weapons or anything on you. Five people checked me. We bid each other a good day. We went through that, got to the first gate, nobody there. Second gate, nobody there. Third gate, nobody there. Fourth gate, there's a man standing behind the counter. Did you ever find an airplane? No, I did Yeah, you did. Did you ever find an airplane? No. No? No. So this man was behind the counter, and he said, Sir, it looks like you're the only one that's showing up for this flight this morning. Hmm. That just puzzled me. And then my mind started to go really wild. And I said, you know what? I've never flown first class before. I wonder if they'd let me sit in first class. So I went up to the counter and I said, sir, could I fly in first class if nobody's going to be sitting in those seats anyway? He said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. There's no first class in this airplane. Well, it's 55 <laughs> seats and it's all the same, but you can sit wherever you want. My ticket said to sit in 3D. Okay. Pretty soon, a lady came down the hallway, and she had a suitcase behind her, and she was the flight attendant, the one that was supposed to take care of me. <laughs> so she came up to me and said, sir, it looks like you're the only one that's going to be in this flight. And pretty soon, the pilot, one male and one female, two of them came down the aisle, and the 
attendant said, this gentleman over here, he's the only one that's on our flight today. I looked out the window, and there was a man putting luggage underneath the plane. But now I had 11 people that were making sure that I got from Traverse City, Michigan, to Detroit on a Saturday morning at 540. So what do you think about flying by yourself? Would you be scared to fly by yourself? Yeah. I wasn't, though. So I got on the airplane, and the lady said, uh, do you want anything to eat or drink on this flight? I says, yeah, I'd like a cup of orange juice. Do you want it now or later? I said, now I'll be fine. I sat in the very front seat, and she gave me a cup of orange juice, and that's all she had to do the rest of the time, except to tell me that if we have an accident, you have to take this mask to put over you, and you have to buckle your seatbelt, and you know, all of this and that. Okay, she had to tell me that. It was her and me. Well, before we took off, a returning flight attendant who was returning, she wasn't on duty, she jumped on also. So technically there were two of us, but I was the only paying passenger. Now that flight that day cost Delta a lot of money. The invitation was out for anybody that wanted to fly on that airplane. There could have been 50 or 55 of us, but nobody else wanted to go. I want to go to heaven. Do you want to go to heaven? Is there anybody out there that's going to join me going to heaven? I see some hands out there. Think we could fill up that airplane? I think we could. So that day, it cost Delta more to fly me than I could ever pay. I wish I knew how much. Jesus died on the cross. Even if it was just for you, or for me, he would have died on the cross for one of us. But there's many of us here that want to go to heaven. So he died for all of us who have accepted him as Savior. But you know, it's not going to be an easy life to live the Christian life. There's things that are going to come in our way, and there are going to be discouragement. There's going to be suffering and heartaches. Do you ever get an ouchie? Do you ever need a Band-Aid? No? I do. Uh, sometimes I hurt myself. Yeah. So the reality is that someday we're going to fly, and we're going to, not an airplane to heaven, but we're going to go up to heaven. If we are ready to meet Jesus, it's going to be a glorious day. Let's pray that we can all be ready for that. Okay? God, thank you for these children. Bless them as they grow up. They love and serve you. And when you choose to call them home, I pray that they would meet you and be ushered into glory. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may go back to your parents. Brothers and sisters, someday I'm going to fly first class. It may not be on an airplane, but we're going to fly first class. We go to glory. Our hard topic here this evening, topic is on suffering. I believe that each one of us knows exactly what we're talking about. And I believe each one of us knows exactly the questions that go through our mind when we deal with this difficult subject of suffering. Why is there suffering? Well, I need to make a correction before we go into this. Last night, I misquoted two figures. 
The one is the price of those acres of land is under $200 instead of what I told you. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. And the number of huts that are on that is exceeding 500. I said 300 and some, it exceeds 500 and some. Okay, just to be honest, straightforward with you, I did not intentionally tell you two numbers that were wrong. It won't affect you theologically. It's just helping me to get my conscience clear about those two miscommunications. Okay, so why is there a problem in suffering? What is it that causes us to wonder sometimes, why are we here and why must I go through this? A pastor should always preach recognizing there's someone in the audience that's likely going through a hard time, some degree or another. They're going through something that is causing them grief, that is suffering for them. Maybe it's sickness, maybe it's pain, maybe there's an accident, maybe there's some parting from some friend of theirs that we were sitting in our house the other week and a lady came in to the house and she sat on the couch and she just had some tears because some of her friends, the family was moving out of the area. The parting was going to be difficult. It wasn't that she was angry about that. She's just very sad about that. And we have tears that God's given us for a reason. And we have death. Alma and I were asked to do, a, I was asked to do a funeral for a little baby between three and six months old that died of a bug bite. This family, we didn't know. They were from the community. Uh, actually, the man and woman were not married, but one of their friends knew us, and they asked if we, would if we would do the funeral. Their first baby, this couple's probably only 18, 19, 20 years old, something like that. We went to the funeral home, and there was about 10 people that showed up for this funeral. These were people about their same age, and I preached a message about how Jesus cares about you, and he cared about this baby. And then I invited anyone who cared to, to join me in singing, Jesus Loves Me. Nobody seemed to know Jesus loves me. So I had Alma come up, and we stood around this little baby's casket, and we sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I hope those people never forgot those words. Despite the pain, Jesus loved them, and they needed to feel that and to have it expressed to them. That was a few years back. But that, kid, that event comes back to my mind where some people do not know that Jesus loves them. And in pain and suffering, they become bitter instead of uh, learning from it. The Bible says sin entered into the world and death came by sin. We've already had this verse this week, but the idea there is that, that it is, it is, there's a cause that we can go back to for why there is suffering. We can't explain why that little baby passed what had it done? Nothing. 
but it was a part of fallen humanity. And broken things, broken creation suffers. Should you and I reject God because of suffering? Some people do reject God. They stumble over that. I don't know if you've heard this name or not, but Charles Templeton, 1940s, 50s, was a friend of Billy Graham, became a tremendous evangelist, and yet, after World War II, all the suffering that was talked about with the Holocaust and all the things that he saw turned him against the God he had preached, and he became an agnostic, eventually became an atheist. It shook Billy Graham as well, all the pain and suffering that he was seeing in the world in that era of time. But Billy Graham decided to take the Bible for what it said and to stand on that. It said that Charles Templeton, at the end of his life, was visited by a Christian. And he reflected some on his life. And with some tears coming down his cheeks, he said, I really miss Jesus. And then he kind of wiped his tears and acted like it did not matter that he had no relationship with God. This man was just trying to pry into his life at this juncture to ask, what would you do again? And what has come into your life that, that you realize that you could have, could have changed, you could have impacted? He rejected God because of suffering. If we recognize that suffering is the result of sin, we're going to be, we're going to be angry at sin instead of at God. I stayed in someone's home one time, and this uh, lady was probably 70 years old, something, which isn't old anymore, but she was about that. And she was out in the garden. One day, I went out there. Her husband and, and her kept me for a summer. And I went out to the garden, and she's out there. I don't know if she knew I was around or not, but she was down there pulling weeds. And she said, sin, 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 and she's pulling the weeds. I thought, that's right. It's all because of sin that there's thistles and there's thorns, and it's all because of sin that there's suffering that we, that we go through. But it's easy to say, God, why did you allow that to happen? But we're responsible for the brokenness that's in the world, and, and, and we have to try to sort through why there is this suffering, and, and what do I do with this suffering, and Tragedies happen to us, and we see it happen to, like this little baby. The, the suffering is there, and it's real, and we cry about that. We should cry with people who are suffering. We can't walk beside them and say, this is exactly why all this suffering came, but we can walk beside them and say, God hasn't forsaken you. On the, based on the promises of God's word, God is still there, and he's there to meet you at this time. What does it reflect about God when bad things happen? I don't know if you ever read the book that the Jewish rabbi wrote about why bad things happen to good people. 1981, he wrote this book and it became a bestseller. Don't read it. Because his premise is, 
that God can't either be good and powerful at the same time. Either God is not good or God is not all-powerful, and that's why suffering exists. That's his premise. And at the bottom of that whole thing, he never speaks about the sin issue as being the result, the, the consequence for, uh, or the suffering as a consequence for our sin. Does it reflect on God when bad things happen? I don't believe there's any conflict in saying that God is a loving and all-powerful God and the evil and the suffering in the world. I don't believe that has to be pitted against. Why would an atheist say, if there is a loving God, then why all this suffering? It's because he can't explain suffering. We can't explain suffering very well either, but we see the scripture that speaks to us about God bringing something out of suffering, and with God we can begin to make some sense of that suffering. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. I'd like to start reading at verse 16. Romans 8, 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that's seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see that not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And God, he, God, that searcheth the hearts, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them which are called according to his purpose. He says here, for good, he didn't say for ease. He didn't say for happiness. He didn't say for health. He said, for good. God has given us everything that we need, all things, for life and godliness. Do you believe that? God has given us what we need to go through this experience of life with the pain and with the suffering, and I need to recognize his hand 
upon me even in the suffering. Why do we talk about suffering? Because we all know how unexplainable it seems to be at times. Why the child gets sick and dies at a young age. Why someone who is valuable in the church dies of a plane crash. Why someone who is, who is at the prime uh, meets a misfortune. We struggle. And we can either make that suffering be something that we trip over and we fall down and become bitter about it, unexplained suffering, or we can say, God, I want to step up on this suffering and I want to see from your vantage point more clearly what you want to do through that suffering. And it, and it turns out to be a blessing. And you look at old men who are meek and mild and fun to be with. Those are men who have experienced suffering in their life, guaranteed. Because the rough edges have been knocked off and they've learned to see something about life and have a perspective and a trust in God that is really helping them to minister to other people through that, that spirit of, of humility. A person that thinks they have it all together is a person that is arrogant and they're going to be tough to work with and they become grouchy old men. When they get old and can't function like they normally did, they become grouchy. But a person that has a spirit of, of gratitude and a person that has a spirit of, of hope is because they've been through the challenges of suffering to some degree or another. God has already done what a loving God would do. He gave His Son for the remission of sins. He is out of His abundant love, given us what we need, so we do not need to go back on God when bad things happen. Suffering is an invitation to know God. Was it C.S. Lewis that said, God uses suffering as a megaphone to get our attention? We never really learn to pray until there's nothing left to do but pray. It is through things out of our control that we take a look up, say, God, I can't handle this. And the quicker we turn it up to God, the better we are, instead of trying to sludge through it on our own. But God wants to bring us to a place where he has our attention, and we realize that we cannot do anything about this situation. And I, I must confess, I have not had extreme Suffering in my life, I don't, I don't think I have. I've had shed many tears about things, but I wouldn't say that I've had extreme amounts of suffering. And so I'm compassionate for those that are angry. A caller called one day and he said, I am angry at God and I'm angry at you. Yesterday I found out my nine-year-old daughter has what's potentially a terminal illness. It's not fair. And he ranted and raved and ranted and raved. And I knew enough to just let him do it until he got that out of his system. He said, brother, what was your view of God before? He was a Christian. 
He was ready to throw it up. Throw up his faith. What was your view of God before? And at the end, he said, thank you. I needed that perspective again. But he was just so distressed at that whole thing. And I would have been too, I think. But that's what the brotherhood's all about, to help us to understand that God hasn't gone back on any of his promises just because they're suffering. Do you believe that God can heal your pain? Paul had pain, thorns in the flesh. There was a reason. He said so that pride didn't become a part of his life. He accepted that. Do you believe that God understands your suffering and cares about its dosage? How much he's pouring out on you at a certain time? It seems overwhelming at times. God gets our attention. It's an invitation to know him. 2 Corinthians says, Our light affliction worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I love to see tears. I love to hear when somebody's broken. It's good for me when I can be broken. My brother had the misfortune, we'd say, of his son committing suicide a few years ago. He says he just went out and just screamed and just, God, why, why? What could have he done differently? And that's the right thing to ask, to evaluate that. God, what are you going to do to refine the rest of the family now because of that experience? 2 Corinthians 1 says that our suffering is so that we can meet the needs of other people better. That's one outcome of suffering. Are you willing to be useful in that way? Suffering isn't always because of a direct sin that you've committed. But there's evil men that commit things that are harsh for us and suffering because of those around us. Can I accept that God has a work for me in ministering to others? Or do I just want to evade the suffering that comes. Christ didn't evade the cross. He knew the final word was not crucifixion. What did he know? The final word was resurrection, victory. A mother that goes into labor endures the pain because she knows what's going to happen. Lord willing, a new life brought forth. And oh, for the joy that's set before Christ to have gone to the cross to give us victory. Why doesn't God stop suffering? Some years back, a man, it was 1993, that this picture was taken of a child in famine-ravished Sudan. This child is crawling across sparched ground. And behind him is a vulture. 
just waiting. It appears, as you look at the picture, just waiting for that child to die. It brought an outcry. This was in the New York uh, paper, and this man got a Pulitzer Prize for award for this picture. It became such a focal point to deal with hunger and to deal with people suffering around the globe. It was a jolt of reality. What can we as a, uh, a rich country do to help this kind of situation? It should not happen. Yeah, that's, that's the outcry that came. Why doesn't God stop this kind of thing? Because God made us creatures of choice. And he cannot withdraw that quality because he made us in his image. He is a creature of choice. He would have to take us out of the world if he wanted to end evil and suffering. And he's chosen not to do that yet. He would have to take all mankind out of this world if he wanted to end evil and suffering. Someday that will be a reality. But right now, he's giving people the opportunity to see him and who he is. God sees fit for the human race to continue for a time. Oh, we don't know how long. But for a time, he sees fit for the human race to continue. God can stop suffering. And there's times we don't know that he does stop suffering. But because he's a merciful God, he can choose when to alleviate suffering. He is not required to, but because he's a merciful God, he does alleviate suffering at times. God desires to bring good in our life out of suffering. We can't always see it for a long period of time, but there is something that comes through the hardships that we face that refines us. And the trial and the suffering, again, is no indication that God has forgotten about us or forgotten the promises to us. He desires to bring good. And unless you know everything, unless I know everything, We could never say no good can come from the suffering and the pain that we have. Romans 8, as we read, says there's a suffering creation that's waiting for deliverance. The Garden of Eden was perfect. But when man sinned, God had to change the environment that he lived in to meet his spiritual state. So God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden into a sin-cursed world where we have the weeds and the thorns and the pain in childbirth and all of that. But someday, this earth is going to go away. It's going to be over. It's going to burn up with fire, the Scripture says. Until then... The whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain. Energy is 
being changed to a non-usable form. It's, as we said, the second law of thermodynamics. It's tending to run down. Everybody knows, the scientists know this earth is not going to last. We know from Scripture that it's not going to last. It's going to burn up. But then there's a new heaven, and there's a new earth. I don't know how that's all going to be, but God's going to restore. He's going to bring back. It says, we too, as people, wait for the redemption of our body, in verse 23 of the text. But until that time, we groan, but the Spirit is there to help us in our infirmities and to intercede for us so that there is that support that we have through that suffering that's there. We look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. These children don't have a full concept of what heaven is. I don't have a full concept of what heaven is. But it's taken God a long time to get it ready for us. And I think because it's taken a long time, it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to seeing heaven, but I'm really looking forward to seeing Jesus. To look him in his face and to relate to my Savior, the one who's been Lord of my life, the one I've committed my very well-being to. I look forward to that day when my body is redeemed. I'm ready. Yes, we groan. Our body gets old. We feel pain where we never felt pain before. We can't function as, as we once did. We're ready to have this house of our flesh put off and to be translated to glory. We're going to be changed. Our mortal is going to put off immortality. In the midst of a world of heartache and sorrow, brothers and sisters, we are made to realize that this world is not our final home. We are moving on. Henry Morrison was on a preaching tour. If I understand right, he was a missionary to Africa for about 40 years, but he was on a preaching tour. He led thousands of people to the Lord on that trip. And on his return, he was on a ship with the ex-president Teddy Roosevelt. But Teddy Roosevelt was a pretty glamorous fella in his day. His children were allowed some pets in the White House. They'd ride up and down the elevator in the White House. And anyway, they had some, some pretty unique pets. But he was a great hunter. And he was a great, a great preservationist. But he went to Africa with one of his sons to hunt. And he was returning on the same ship that Henry Morrison was returning on. They docked in New York. And the crowds were there to meet him, Teddy Roosevelt. He got on a train and headed toward his home state, hometown. People met him along the way, and people gave him honor. He had just been to Africa, and all these amazing animals he had hunted Henry Morrison got off the ship, walked down the gangplank with his satchel. There was no one there to meet him. He too got on a, a train, and he was feeling sorry for himself. Here I have been out in the work of the Lord. I've been working my tail off. That's not his term, but 
working hard for the cause of Christ, leading thousands of people to the Lord, and here I am. Nobody's here to meet me. The story goes that Henry got a little room. They lived in a little room, and his wife said to him one day, Henry, you got to get a hold of yourself. You're really sad. You're really looking down on things. You got to get a hold of yourself. Go into that bedroom and don't come out till you've gotten things straightened out. So he went in there and knelt on his knees and he prayed and he prayed. When he came out, his countenance was completely different. His wife looked at him and smiled. What did the Lord tell you? He said, The Lord told me I'm not home yet. You're not home yet. I'm not home yet. But we're going home. There's hope. Amidst the suffering of this life, there is hope of a future. A future with God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. I want to leave this challenge with you as a congregation. Luke chapter 9. Before I read that, I'd like to read a poem. This poem my sister-in-law gave to me. After some painful experiences, she wrote it here in July. When your world has caved into a pit of despair and all you feel is broken, do you find Jesus there? When everything around you is blooming and bright, and life is full of joy and promise. Do you find Jesus there? In the everyday mundane, when life is dry and dull and monotonous, do you find Jesus there? When you feel complete, when you feel unworthy, when you feel at peace, when you feel afraid, can you find Jesus there? He's in the rubble, he's in the glory, he's in the gathering, he's in the empty room. Can you see Jesus there? If you were walking with the disciples and the crowd that followed him, would you keep your distance or would you want to meet him there? Suppose he stopped and turned around to see you fully. Would you meet his gaze or would you turn away? Is Jesus in your journey? Or is he just the final prize? Where do you find Jesus today? Luke chapter 9, starting verse 57. And it came to pass that as he went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the year have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he saith, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the gospel of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell 
which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The first man said, I'll go. I'll do what God asked me to do. And Jesus said, just remember, there's a high cost. The scripture says a man that will not leave father and mother, houses and land, is not worthy of being my disciple. He didn't say that we can't have a relationship, but he was saying, if you're not willing to put me first, you are not worthy of being mine. The second said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. They buried the dead the day of death in that country. And so it seems to me that Jesus was saying this man's father not died yet. And that this man was just waiting to go. But you know what? When somebody is, is saying, I have to wait, there's a better day to go serve the Lord, it often ends up that it's never. So what God puts in your place today, no matter the cost, put your hand to the plow. Don't turn back. The third man, Lord, I'll follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. Jesus said, no. You can love your parents, but he that hateth not family, meaning love less than love me, cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. He that does not put his hand to the plow is not worthy of the kingdom of God. But he that puts his hand to the plow and looks ahead at the responsibility that God has given us to be reflectors of his grace in a broken world is the person that is going to experience the joy. Except the grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, there won't be new life. But if we preserve our life, we're not going to receive eternal glory. But if we die, there's promise that life will come out. It's been a joy being with you as a congregation. It's been a joy being with our family, our families. And we love each one of them, and we want to thank you for your care for them. And we also appreciate getting to know you better this time here, and trust that we will pray for each other, that we not fall by the wayside, that we not turn back, that we not lose faith, we not lose hope amidst what life brings. Let's stick together as brothers and sisters. Let's go forward. He's coming. Someday he's coming, and we're going to look into the face of Jesus and he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. For the ceaseless ages of eternity, we're going to be there rejoicing with him. Let's pray.